You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, your source for mostly civil discussions about theology, philosophy, literature, and other things that human beings do well. Join us each week for our conversations and visit our website at christianhumanist.org, where you can email us, read our blog, and order merchandise paying homage to the most important Christian thinkers of the past two millennia. And now, the hosts of the Christian Humanist Podcast, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. I've read your books many times You can say that I'm a fan I have them all in paperback They're displayed in a row I've never seen your face before Except on the inside jacket You and I have a lot to talk It's your favorite restaurant Hi, and welcome to our special July episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I am the host for this episode. My name is Michael Farmer. I am an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me today, as always, is the sage of Franklin Springs, Nathan Gilmore, (laughs) who is a... uh, Are you still an assistant professor at... uh, I am still an assistant professor and still enjoying it. At Emanuel College in... Franklin Springs, Georgia. Also joining us is the Bard of McPherson. He is a professor of English at, uh, what is it called? Ish. Central Central, Central Christian <laughs> College? Central Christian College of Kansas. There CCC. There, he, and he, as you notice, is a full professor. So uh, he's obviously outranks both me and Nathan. Well, I've been told I can call myself professor. I'm not sure. I, I don't know yet what's going to go on the door. I just had a mental image of you looking in the mirror and saying, all right, professor, let's go. Yeah, that's <laughs> not going to happen. <laughs> oh, heavens. We have a special topic today. We're going to be talking about Nathan's first of, I'm sure, many books. But before we get there, we probably should talk housekeeping. I'm not going to bother talking about what's on the blog both because uh, it's been more than a month since our last episode and because Nathan is the only one who has posted to it in weeks and weeks and weeks. <laughs> and therefore talking about the blog implies our shame. Yeah, I get it, Michael. <laughs> it, well, it's been so pathetic that you and I haven't even added anything to Link's posts. Like, everything on the blog for the last month has been Nathan. <laughs> everything. Literally everything. Although I think well, we have an excuse. We, we, we've both been moving. To other states. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't feel too bad. No. I feel bad now. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm basically moved in. I should I should be writing on it now. But uh, there'll be something soon from me. I don't know about David. We'll see. We'll and uh, see. of course, there's always stuff coming from Nathan because he's a machine. He is. <laughs> Although I have to say, by comparison, our, our friend over at CWC, Chris Gertz, his new blog, The Pietist Schoolman, I have no idea with infant twins how he is producing a post a day i happened to ask him that i went over to his house last week and happened to ask him that and i believe he had a backlog of posts ah okay okay I see you're you just pulled the curtain on him man you're not supposed to pull the curtain <laughs> on other people i would feel worse about doing that if i hadn't just admitted that i hadn't written anything including links <laughs> descriptions for weeks oh, so that's chris, true. chris knows that however however much i've pulled the curtain back on him he is still infinitely better than i am that well, is a also, great blog by the way there's a link to it on our sidebar so if you haven't been reading it uh, you should go read it true dad and I, I envy you getting to hang out with CWC guys. That's that's pretty cool. They told me it was like meeting the world's most minor celebrity. 
Which, which I, I thought was a pretty good description on both sides. You meeting them or them meeting you? I think both. Okay. We're all in, we're all internet celebrities, David. Yeah, that's right. right. All right, all right. Um, I also, while we're plugging other people's work, I wanted to talk about a new podcast some friends of mine are doing. These are two guys I went to college with. They have a show called Night Cheese, which is a 30 Rock <laughs> reference. Um, and, and each week they talk about two movies and two TV shows, and they do it from kind of a vaguely Christian perspective, although it is not a heavily theological show. They just have really good discussions of shows and movies they think you should be watching so that is night cheese it's on uh itunes i think they're on their third or fourth episode now i listen every week it's very exciting very fun cool cool do you guys have anything you want to plug while we're uh while we're feeling generous ah not not really i i've i've been yeah writing dissertation and packing boxes of books so i i don't have anything to plug other than uh Theodoret, pretty awesome church father, for a really good <laughs> apology. Anyway, now, now uh, does, did he do it as a blog or a podcast? Um, I think he probably used parchment, Michael. Hmm. So, yeah. so wait, now do you mean that he he used the WordPress default background that looks like a piece of parchment paper? Is that is that what you mean? I don't <laughs> I don't really get what you're saying here. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it probably used like like. Like Goody hand tooled or something as his font. <laughs> I thought that was Gaudy. I don't know. <laughs> Who pronounces the names of fonts, really? Gaudy old style. That's what I, I thought I thought that was Gaudy. I, I figured he used Comic Sans MS. <laughs> fonts I saw, of the Church Fathers. I saw a thing online and this is so off topic, but you know, the three of us haven't talked since our last episode. Uh, I saw this thing on, on online that was saying what your font choices say about you. And for Comic Sans MS, it said, this will liven up the church newsletter. <laughs> <laughs> Truer words were never spoken. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Indeed. All right. Well, let's move on from that uh, ridiculousness and talk about Nathan's book, which is called, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Nathan, Theological Dramatics, and it is out now. You can get it from Amazon. Do you want to make a particular plug before we start, Nathan? Oh, not particularly. I mean, I'll, I'll just repeat what I've said in previous episodes, that uh, this is definitely published and priced for university library acquisition. Uh, so if you do go on, don't feel guilty that you have no inclination to spend that many dollars on that short a book. What is it, like 70 bucks? <laughs> It really is, yeah. And it's like 52, 53 pages, right? Yeah, very, very brief book. It's more of an essay. I mean, we're talking shorter than Rob Bell. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, I, you know, I like I said, I mean, I am glad to have published it. I'm glad that Lambert Academic Publishing gave me that opportunity. Uh, but do not feel bad at all if you don't have that many dollars to drop on that short a book. On the other hand, if you do buy it, you can send it to Nathan at Emmanuel College, and for $20, he will autograph it. <laughs> and for $25, he'll autograph it and write a brief message. Ah. Uh, <laughs> man. We're anyway. your investment in that book to $95. From the future of the book, let's turn to the past of the book and just talk about the history of, of the, the book and the project it started out as. Nathan, can you explain briefly what you're arguing in the book and then tell us how you cooked it up? Certainly. Uh, first of all, the argument of the book 
uh, focuses on two poets, uh, both from the 17th century, who are writing Jesus poems. And the central argument of the book is that any time a poet intentionally writes about Jesus, writes a Jesus poem, that person is interacting with a tradition that extends centuries in either direction. Uh, so in other words, you know, when Milton writes basically a retelling of the temptation of Christ from the fourth chapter of Luke, uh, also a parallel in the fourth chapter of Matthew, uh, he is not just appropriating a text that schoolboys learn when they are learning their Latin, but rather he is appropriating a living text. Uh, he is expanding on certain things. He is emphasizing certain things. Uh, he is effectively doing theology, and therefore he is incorporating himself as the poet into the ongoing history of telling and retelling the story of Christ. Uh, now, the other major poem that I dealt with here, and we'll talk about these poems and their content a little bit later, is Salve Deus Rex Judiorum, another Jesus poem, but this one focusing on the crucifixion. Uh, and my argument for both of them is that by creating new text about Jesus, they are, like I said, participating in something that is akin to but not identical with the tradition of preaching within the church, the saying something new about Jesus, the basically participating in articulating Christ for the world. And so, you know, when I get to the end of the book, which we'll also discuss in more detail a little bit later, I argue that criticism on those sorts of poems uh, really ought to be more self-aware than it tends to be about its interaction, whether willing or otherwise, with uh, the long tradition of Christian homily. Now, as far as how the project came to be, uh, I wrote this puppy dog back in 2003 and 2004 uh, as my master's thesis in English literature. Uh, it was approved by, you know, uh, doctors Freer, Teague, Doyle uh, at the University of Georgia. Uh, you know, they rather enjoyed it. They thought it was, you know, a cheeky little thesis and you know, love that I was taking on the questions I was. Uh, and then it largely sat on my shelf for about seven years until uh, this company from Germany contacted me years later uh, and said, you know, we were looking through the catalog of master's theses, you know, at the University of Georgia Library, and we saw yours, and we'd like to expand our theology and literature catalog, so would you be interested in publishing it as a book? And my first thought was, you know, this has got to be some kind of hoax because, you know, frankly, <laughs> it was my master's thesis. So I said, all right, you know, I won't delete the email, but I'm going to, you know, just kind of sit on it, sit on it. I was in the middle of a semester. I was busy. Uh, so I said, you know, I'll, I'll wait till I have some time to investigate these people a little bit more fully, and then I'll see, you know, what they really want from me. Well, then <laughs> uh, I got an email from... Dr. Coburn Freer, who was my master's thesis advisor, uh, and he said, you know, this company in Germany just contacted me, said that they really wanted your master's thesis, but that you weren't answering your emails. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I told them that I would contact you. Did you get your emails? So when he contacted me, I figured this had to be something worth looking into at least. I asked him if I should pursue this or whether these people look like, you know, some sort of shady, you know, uh, operation of ill repute to 
misused the phrase entirely. Well, they are and, German. Well, yeah, and he responded with one of those wonderful so Coburn Freer lines that reminded me of why I love Coburn Freer. He said that one of the essays that he's most proud of is one that he published in an obscure French journal whose readership you could count on one dismembered hand. <laughs> <laughs> and that was enough for me, so I contacted the uh, Lambert Academic Publishing. They gave me some guidelines for formatting it. They gave me a deadline that put it that put me right when my midterm grades were due. And so, uh, you know, although I would have enjoyed the opportunity to rewrite some of the chapters and bring them up to 2011 speed, uh, I basically reformatted the footnotes, you know, adjusted the margins so that they would fit their format and turn that puppy in. Uh, and about three weeks later, I received my complimentary copy in the mail. And right now my mother's got that up in Indiana. So is she actually reading it? Uh, she has read the opening chapter and the acknowledgments. Gotcha. So in other words, I mean, this is one of the, another one of those moments, uh, as I said, back in the Christian rock episode where I am Forrest Gumping it through life. Uh, you know, <laughs> There's no way I would have been anywhere near ready to publish a book anytime in the next couple of years, but the opportunity just kind of dropped in my lap. Uh, so I once again I I find myself with a book under my CV now. So now people in Germany apparently love something that people in America weren't much interested in, which makes me wonder if you see yourself as the literary critic version of David Hasselhoff. <laughs> Uh, well, well, if Tony Jones is listening, I, I don't think I would apply that analogy to myself. I, I wouldn't be quite that bold. Wow. <laughs> well, th though, honestly, that that's a really canny thing for them to do. Um, you know, fi find you know that they, they I bet they get to they can sample an awful lot of stuff uh, by the route that they did. Um, you know. They already know they want to catch the fish when they find it, so to speak. Oh, sure, sure. They don't have to wait for manuscripts to show up and then hope that the full book is any good. They can just go read what they want to read. Yep. Very cool. Well, um, as you mentioned, Nathan, you're dealing mainly with two texts here, and I suspect neither of them are going to be terribly familiar to non-specialists. Right, um, right. So why don't we take a few minutes and talk about them. Tell us who Amelia Lanier is, what she does in Salve Deus Rex Judeorum, however you pronounce that, and, and what she has to say to the little old lady in Dubuque, who I think of as our main audience. Well, of course, of course. Uh, Salve Deus is a long narrative poem. Uh, it is a nested narrative. So, in other words, what you got is uh, your main narrative voice, which is narrating the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, and then within that, you have, I guess, side episodes, for lack of a better descriptor. You've got uh, a long section where Pilate's wife comes to him and tries to talk him out of crucifying Jesus, but expanding on the brief, I had a vision in the night that you should not crucify this man from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, she issues forth in an extended, uh, what criticism is called the Apology of Eve, and basically this is a sort of proto-feminist reading of Christian theology, or at least that's how I imagine it, saying that, 
you know, the idea, which was very prevalent in the Renaissance, uh, certainly had some currency before and still has some currency in the period after, but very, very much a, a live question in the Renaissance. The idea that because Eve is the one who ate the forbidden fruit, therefore it is women's fault that there is sin in the world. Uh, she basically goes after that, you know, this being Pilate's wife. And then, of course, within the Eve's apology, there's a long, long speech by Eve. So, like I said, it's sort of a triple-nested narrative. Uh, but at any rate, she argues that because Eve sought out the fruit for the sake of wisdom, but Adam only sought at, only ate the fruit because it looked good to eat, uh, that therefore, you know, for one, you know, this isn't really something that, you know, Eve pursued for the bad motives. It was Adam who pursued it for base appetite. And then she goes on to say, you know, therefore, Pilate, you know, uh, and by the way, it never explains why Pilate's wife has been reading Genesis. I, <laughs> just <doesn't seem> to, <laughs> well, but why would Cornelius have done, you know? Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but then it goes on to a long speech by Pilate's wife to Pilate saying, Pilate, if you go through with this, then this means that at the behest of the male Jerusalem priesthood, executed by the male head of the Jerusalem province of the male-headed Roman Empire, uh, you will have crucified the Son of God entirely without the involvement of women. And therefore, if you go through with this pilot, never again will men be able to say that the worst sin in the world is women's fault because this is all men's doing. Mm. And so, you know, I mean, it's this wonderful, very biblical... Like I said, I mean, it, it really reads like an early feminist theology, uh, you know, trying to examine, you know, what is the nature of obedience to God? What is the nature of hospitality? What is the nature of charity? And, you know, is it really sensible to say that, you know, women are at the root of the violations of all these things? Now, so the that's what's up. Go ahead, Michael. Sorry. The, the impression I got from reading your description of that. Uh-huh is that there's a little bit of a wink to it as well, right? She's uh, she's having a little bit of fun with this. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it's a wonderfully clever poem. I mean, you know, she is, uh, you know, because you can't, in the early 17th century, she's roughly contemporary with John Donne, publishes her poem right about the time that the King James Bible is being published. Because this is a time when openly angry feminist text first of all, probably would have been censored. And second of all, if it hadn't been, you know, it would have been a source of horror for the reader rather than a source of moral conviction. Uh, she does approach this, I mean, with a wonderful satirical wit. Uh, she definitely has a way of turning phrases that, you know, really turn the anti, or I guess turn the misogyny that is so common in the 17th century back on itself and say, well, if this is really the case, then wouldn't it follow that this, that, mm -hmm. and the other, right? You know, I mean, it's very, it's very much a 17th century satire, which makes it a, right. a wonderfully fun poem. And, and how influential was that argument, if not the actual poem itself, on later, like, feminist theologians? Uh, as far as I know, feminist theology, as it's practiced in the big divinity schools, doesn't pay a lot of attention to Amelia Lanyard. She's mainly a feature of early modernist English literary scholarship. Uh, you know, I, I think that that is a pity because, you know, she is definitely able to hold her own in a world of John Dunn's and, you know, 
and other wits of the 17th century. So, I mean, I think that, you know, it, it's something if, if theologians, feminist theologians especially, wanted to pick up and run with, I think it would make a nice counterbalance to some of the controlling narratives that say that, you know, before Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Christianity was anti-woman, 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 you know, until you get back to Junia, the lost apostle. You know, or, yeah, yeah. Some, or something of that ilk, you know. Uh, I think that, you know, it shows that the impulse within Christianity to do a couple of things. First of all, to consider all human beings brothers and sisters in Christ. And second of all, to poke holes in the dominant ideology of the day are both active, at least in the 17th century. And of course, you know, you explore more poetry, you find even more hole pokers out there. <laughs> All right, well, let's give uh, Nathan a little bit of a break here, Grubbs, and I'm going to let you talk about his other primary source, which, as he mentioned, was uh, Milton's Paradise Regained. Now, sure. every every educated person should have read Paradise Lost, and if you're listening to this <laughs> and you consider yourself educated and you have not read Paradise Lost, I think you might want to reconsider uh, your labels. Uh, but but what, what do you make of the sequel to that to that poem? David, is it more Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade or Kingdom of the Crystal Skull? Is it good? Is it bad? And what do you think of uh, Nathan's argument about it? Well, I'd say it was Temple of Doom. <laughs> um, <laughs> See, you're already thinking like Nathan, where I give you a either-or question and you answer it with uh, with neither. <laughs> well, yeah, you 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 gave me a choice of a palette that has more than two colors. Um, well, and, and I'll, I'll explain it this way. When I first saw the Indiana Jones movies, I would have ordered it Raiders, Last Crusade, Temple of Doom. But Temple of Doom grew on me, right? I thought about it more. I started to appreciate the things that it did well. And I started, and I learned to accept that the writer and director weren't trying to do Raiders all over again, but instead were trying to do something different with the character of Indiana Jones. So, mutatis mutandis. I didn't like Paradise Regained much when I first read it. Um, but on rereading it, you know, I, I learned to appreciate it more. Part of what I didn't like is I like I love the epic action of Paradise Lost. The sun drives mm -hmm. forth to Satan in, in this epic route in heaven. And Paradise Regains, the sun gives Satan a series of stern lectures. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean that's 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 true. That's what happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but if you buckle down and you consider the arguments, you know, if you look at what at what's going on in Paradise Regain, you you find out that the sun on Earth still outclasses Satan as much as the sun in heaven. All right. Um, and I that I think that connects with Nathan's argument in this way, at least as I understand it, Nate. You can correct me if I'm misrepresenting things. But namely, that what we see in the interaction of the characters in Paradise Regained, particularly the, the interaction of Satan and the Son, is how one behaves who may be rightly called the Son of the Father. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we, you know, we see him live that out. Um, you know, Nathan's argument uh, is that it, it, this, in talking about the sonship of Jesus, uh, Milton is not turning back to uh, the arguments of the ecumenical creeds and their discussions of of substance or essence and or hypostasis or, 
or you know, whatever Greek or Latin terms get thrown around. Instead, he's talking about um, the Trinity and, and Jesus' role in it uh, in terms of the relationship of son and father. Now, our listeners know or probably know that I'm a big fan of Nicene Trinitarian Orthodoxy. And Nathan, <laughs> you're just going to have to forgive me if I'm sometimes inclined to rough up at least the Milton of D. Doctrina Christiana, St. Nicholas style. But, I mean, God chose to dramatize the events in the gospel records, and what Milton chose to do in Paradise Regained is pretty much the same kind of thing. Um, how the Father loves and honors the Son, and how the Son loves and honors the Father. So, I give you that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is there any more that you want to unpack of that? I mean, uh, th there's a lot that you do, but, you know. Uh, right. Well, and then the other thing is I, I've also got a currently 25-page chapter on Paradise Regained in my dissertation. Mm -hmm. So trying His next to, book to be published. And, it's <laughs> and it is an entirely different emphasis from what I wrote about back in 2004. So every time I think about this now, I've got my 2011 brain on. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I think that what you've given is a pretty good summary of what I was doing back in 2004 with that poem. Uh, you know, I mean, just to give a, a shade of what I've been doing over the last, you know, seven years when I've tried to do something different with Paradise Regained, I think that what you're talking about with that dramatization, uh, it really does, I mean, bring to the fore the fact that for Milton, Jesus really is a unique event in the history of God's interaction with the human race in that, you know, by whatever means, and, you know, whatever vocabulary you're using, uh, you've got a figure on earth who is called Son of God. And in Paradise Regained, at least, I realize Deductrina does some squirrely things. In Paradise <laughs> Regained, at least, uh, you've got someone who is uniquely Son of God in a way that other mortals are not in, the, in ways that Lucifer is not. Right. Uh, and therefore, you know, I mean, what Milton is wrestling with there uh, is you know, nothing short of what God is given what we've been revealed. And, you know, right. I think that, you know, part of what, part of the conflict between Milton and, you know, folks who are big fans of Nicene Trinitarianism, like David, uh, is that, you know, for Milton, the scriptures are so elevated and so unique in his mind that anywhere there is a difference between the vocabulary of the scripture and the vocabulary of the creeds, Milton assumes that the creeds must be rebelling against the scriptures. Right. Whereas, you know, for someone like David and for someone like me, when I'm not being a Miltonist, uh, <laughs> you know, well, no, I'm, I'm serious because I, I try no, to no, I, you know, imagine myself into that mindset. You know, yeah. the, the creeds and the scriptures are not waging a war for the soul of the church, but rather they are in the process simultaneously of edifying the church. Right. And Milton just couldn't imagine it that way. And I, you know, that's why you've got, uh, you know, Milton's own personal intellectual struggles. Right. Uh, so, I mean, David, I, I think that your account of paradise regain and what I was doing with it is perfectly fine. So Michael, would you add anything to it as someone who is a non-specialist and as an Americanist? No, I uh, I just figured I'd bring it up and let you guys talk about uh, Nicene Trinitarianism. I figured it would come Fair. up naturally, and it did. So <laughs> good. Enough. 
<laughs> so you, you've touched on this a little bit already at the beginning, Nathan, but make it uh, abundantly clear for those of us who are too dumb to understand the book. Uh, what do Lanyard and Milton have in common? Uh, ha, ha, what, what do they do in combining theology and drama? Well, first of all, I want to note that, you know, as I try to get at in the in the book, although having reread it now, I'm not sure I did it entirely well. Uh, these are not dramatic texts in a literary genre sense. They have narrators, uh, which means that by definition they are not drama. The argument that I'm trying to pull forth in the book is that when a believer writes about Christ, because the believer is always already in relationship to Christ, it becomes a dramatic text by virtue of the subject matter and by virtue of the subjection of the writer to the subject matter. All right. Uh, and so, you know, one of the things that I was trying to explore is the way that both of these narrative voices, these personae, uh, become, in a way, characters in the story. And so, you know, that's why I call it theological dramatics, even though I'm talking about two narrative poems, uh, is because really the narrator in both of these stories, because they are part of the grand story of the redemption of the world by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, they become, in a way, messenger figures in a way that Greek, Greek tragedy has messenger figures who tell mm -hmm. the part of the story that none of the characters are privy to, but who are nonetheless themselves bodies on the stage. My mm -hmm. argument is that Milton's narrative persona in Paradise Regained, Lanier's narrative persona in Salvideus, are themselves messenger figures, and therefore we can look at them as dramatic characters, even though they're not generically dramatic texts. So in other words, what you're saying is that anytime a believer in particular writes a uh, narrative about Christ in particular, it's always mm -hmm. already a nested narrative. It's part of a larger yes, whole. Yes, yes. And I would expand mm -hmm. that to say whenever someone writes a poem about Christ, whenever someone like Cousin Zacchaeus writes a novel about Christ. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about some more of those in just a second. Right, right. Whenever a preacher preaches a sermon about Christ, the preacher is never only talking about Christ but the preacher is talking from within Christ as well because he is a member of the body of Christ. In that case, two, two questions. Yeah. W wouldn't it be the case that uh, anytime a believer wrote anything, he would be speaking from within the body of Christ? And number two, would it be the case that if a non-believer wrote something about Christ, is he still part of that interior, exterior narrative you're talking about? Well, this is, you know, part of what I get to in the last chapter. So do you want to save that till that part of the show? or do you Yeah, let, to get let, to it let's now? save it. We'll tease it. Okay, all right. Listeners, <laughs> I will get to that, I promise. Uh, in, in the meantime, let's, let's expand a little bit. Um, obviously, Milton and Lanyer aren't the only theological dramatists, and as, as Nathan said. We use uh, drama loosely here. They're, they're not the only ones out there. So let's, let's talk, as we usually do, about... Uh, you know, other people who are dealing with this same technique. Uh, David, let's start with you. Mm. Well, first of all, um, I'm going to talk about what I know. So given that we're talking about, you know, narratives of Christ, all right, particularly crucifixion narratives, I immediately thought of the Dream of the Rood, uh, old English poem. Um, it's it's a, a dream vision 
in which uh, the narrator sees the cross and the cross speaks to him and then the cross tells the story of the crucifixion from the perspective of the cross um now connections with uh the way you you talk about lanyard and milton nathan um is well first of all the way the narrator is a character um the narrator is carrying on a dialogue with the cross um he's not just telling about some vision that he passively saw it's a dream in which he he you know he had a conversation right. uh, moreover it's a dream that or it's a it's a text that pulls the audience into it again um, it starts off with the word quat or listen hark um, it starts off with this invocation of, of of the listener but as we get towards the end uh, we have a we have a line uh, that talks about you know what Christ did, uh, and then it says he loosed us, and life gave mm. a heavenly home, and so forth. So that you know by the use of these kind of inclusive pronouns, um, the narrator pulls the listener, the audience in as well. The audience is included in the story that he's telling, um, right. has pulled up on the stage so to speak. Um, and I think too that there's. Uh, for for those who've not read it, I th I think too that it's a it's addressing another kind of theological issue, not the issue of incarnation or the issue of the role of women, but the problem, uh, the real problem for a culture like the Anglo-Saxon culture, of someone who represents himself as a king, but who doesn't fight back and doesn't um, mm -hmm. does not uh, defend his uh, his followers. Um, there are, uh, and, and Bede lists some of them, there, there were uh, martyr kings of Anglo-Saxon England, uh, some of whom refused to fight when attacked because they believed it was inappropriate for them to do so. And the legacy of those particular kings um, is a bit ambivalent in the records that write about them. Um, on one hand, well, it's... It, Hey, it's good to be a martyr. On the other hand, a king is supposed to be strong militarily, is supposed to fight the enemies of the kingdom. But um, the story as the cross tells it and as it plays out, um, it plays uh, – Christ is, is depicted. You see him acting um, as a warrior going to a fight. So that the sacrificial death is not passive victimization, but something that's actively embraced, um, as so, so that the you know, martyrdom and uh, peaceful acceptance of the violence of others is recharacterized in uh, in heroic terms. So anyway, I mean that that would be one that I would point to. And David, uh, your description of that reminds me of the Middle English poem, The Pearl, uh, uh, yeah. you know, which is also, you know, definitely a process of educating the narrator. Mm -hmm. And do you want to talk about that for a moment or have you thought about Pearl recently? Um, well, in the, the, the Pearl begins with uh, a narrator, the narrator uh, mourning the loss of this pearl that fell into a hole in the ground. Um, and then he lays on the ground where the pearl fell and has a dream. 
And in the dream, he meets this uh, a little girl in this very obvious kind of kind of heaven scene. He's separated from her by a river, you know, in that very, um, you know, here's the River Jordan separating us from Canaan land, so to speak. You know, anyone who's read Pilgrim's Progress knows what that river is. Um, but the narrator is on one side and this little girl is on the other. And that's when you find out that the pearl is actually um, a metaphor for this child. This is a father who's lost a child. And what he can't understand is why exactly she's over there. <laughs> how, how, how did she get to be there? Because she was just a little child when she died. Right. And moreover, um, how, how did she become a queenly figure in heaven? Yes, because she's, she, you know, she's robed in, in regal garb and she's in the train of the queen of heaven. She's, she's one of the attendants of, of Mary. And he can't understand how she merited that. Um, but her explanation is to repeat. Um, she gives argument after argument, but ending with uh, the refrain, but the grace of God is great enough. So that all of all of his uh, all of his ideas about human merit and how one pleases God and how one obtains the glory of heaven and and you know that that kind of reward uh, end up being false. And she turns him mm -hmm. back to you know no the grace of God is great enough and the grace is what uh, is what's essential. Um, yeah. So in the, in this vision, the narrator is reeducated. Um, taught a, taught another way of thinking about uh, his own faith. Mm -hmm. Michael, were there any other texts that you had in mind to address this question? Yeah, I figured you would talk about The Last Temptation of Christ, um, oh. since I know you love that book, even though the movie is absolutely terrible. It really <laughs> but if you, is. It really if you is. want, I can go ahead and talk about what I had in mind. Go ahead. Um, I have actually two books that are kind of similar to that, and, and they may test the case here a little bit because neither one of them were written by Christians. Um, contemporary literature is not does not have a lot of reverential tellings of the of the Christ story, I, as that most re that recent book by uh, James Fry suggests. The one, the, also the Philip Pullman book, the the. Uh, Good Man Jesus and the Scoundrel Christ. You get a lot more stuff like that. And I want to talk about two notable instances of people writing, non-Christians rewriting the gospel story for whatever purpose. The first one is a novel by Jose Saramago called The Gospel According to Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. in which uh, Christ is a man who is visited by God and told that he needs to found this religion called Christianity. Well, Christ thinks about it recognizes the amount of suffering it's going to cause and tells God, no, he won't do it. Only to realize that uh, God is God and that he can't resist him. And so he's crucified and his last words on the cross are, man, forgive him for he knows not what he does. So, hmm. I mean, this is <laughs> this is really kind of the opposite of... Uh, of something like Dream of the Rude in that it is it is taking Christianity and demonstrating how it fails in Saramago's view to live up to the needs of the modern world, right? So something has failed in Christianity, and so Saramago has written this book that he feels is, I don't know, better expresses the human condition than the, than the actual gospel. Um, and the other one I wanted to talk about was a book that came out just a few years after that called uh, The Gospel According to the Sun, and that's by Norman Mailer. 
And that, that, that book is interesting because Mailer, um, himself admittedly a non-observant Jew, wrote a fairly reverent treatment of the, uh, of the gospel story. It's, it's narrated from Christ's perspective, um, which he got a lot of flack for, although Saramago didn't, uh, but he he uh he treats Christ as divine, even though Mailer himself is outside of the uh, obviously outside of the church. And uh, I I was just wondering what you thought about those that don't have a narrator other than Christ himself. How how do those fit into your uh, to your to your schema of theological dramatics? Well, first of all, I'll, I'll have to start out by admitting that I've read neither of those. <laughs> so I mean, I I am working from what you just said theoret- what now <laughs> what michael just said well i'll be <laughs> yeah, honest yeah. i haven't i haven't read them either i have read numerous reviews of both of them oh, so okay. I, right, i'm by no right. means an expert <laughs> you know i i would say that you know and i mean this kind of leads into the last question on our notes michael so i'll just kind of segue into yeah, it yeah that, that sounds fun that in both of those cases i mean what you're dealing with are texts that are in relationship to that historical continuity that I was describing. Uh, so in other words, you know, if we are talking about texts which are rejecting that centuries-old constellation of traditions, you know, in various relationships of agreement, of tension, of conflict, of all those sorts of things, uh, that, I mean, I don't think it is irresponsible to read them as in conversation with it. So in other words, you know, one of the things that my last chapter is trying to do is particular is precisely to open up the question, how do texts like that relate to uh, basically that, that tradition of piety that I talk about elsewhere in the book. Uh, so, I mean, you know, the, the final chapter, and, and I guess you won't be reading that question to me, Michael. No. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, until, well, until we get to the literary criticism bit, but when we're talking about Jesus literature, you know, told from something other than a Christian perspective, like Pullman, like Mailer, you know, I mean, basically the call that I make to literary criticism, I think would have an analog in the way that we think about criticism of those books. You know, as far as composing those books, you know, I'm not a novelist. Uh, although I hope to be someday. Uh, so, I mean, I don't have a whole lot to say to the experience of writing the Jesus novel. Uh, what I would say is that, you know, as criticism develops surrounding those, you know, the questions that critics should not be afraid of are questions of how it relates to the historical traditions from which it's drawing its material. And against which it's reacting, right? Because, I mean, the Scaramago text that you described, you know, I mean, is definitely positioning itself in relationship to the historic church, even insofar as it rejects a lot of the content of the historical church. I mean, is that a fair reading of it? It sounds like it to me. I haven't read that. Oh, that's right. That's right. (laughs) I read read Blindness. I haven't read uh, The Gospel According to Jesus Christ. Although it sounds... Very tiresome to me. Very tedious. 
<laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, and frankly, I mean, I find I I only read the first of the Golden Co- or the first of the Dark Materials novels by Pullman, and I found it very preachy and very tedious as well. Well, you know the plot. I, maybe our listeners don't. The plot of his latest book is that yeah. Jesus and Christ are twin brothers, and uh, Christ is his like evil twin who is pushing him into the ministry and into being a religious figure. He's basically St. Paul from the, from at least the film version of uh, the last temptation of Christ. I never read the book. The novel version as well. Yeah. Although I'm, it's not the historic St. Paul, it's St. Paul as constructed by Satan. Right. <laughs> right. So that, that's bas- that That's, it sounds like uh Christ from the new Pullman right. book is, is basically. But apparently Pullman didn't get that joke. <laughs> well, <laughs> Pullman seems like the sort of guy who doesn't get a lot of jokes. Yeah, well. <laughs> yeah. Frankly. Um, well, I was going to uh, the other thing I was going to bring up and uh the, the I I didn't because they're not they're not Christ stories, but they're close enough and it's stuff the church has had to deal with over the years is uh what would you do with something like uh the divine comedy that that is so expressly theological? What what relationship does it bear to historical theology? How do we sort through that kind of thing? If you were going to talk about the Divine Comedy, how would you bring it into this book? Well, I just taught the Middle Canto this last semester, so I or the Middle Canticle, pardon me, this semester. So I hope I have something to say about it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, I would say that first of all, Dante as a poet, you know, is not canonized by the Church as a theologian. Uh, he is certainly not, you know, someone who would be considered. Uh, someone possessing official authority. However, (laughs) I would say that the church does well to listen to poets like Dante and to poets like Milton for that reason, even when, and I would say especially when, they go entirely wrong. Uh, You know, I mean, when Dante basically elevates the Roman Empire to the final form of the good city, uh, that which cannot be surpassed and therefore must be sought after by modern day kings. Uh, you know, I mean, that is a profoundly troubling reading uh, of the Christian tradition, especially in light of books like Revelation, Mark 13, you know, all those sorts of things. And yet, observing the way that he goes about that, observing the steps that he makes to get to that error. I think are very instructive. Likewise with Milton, you know, I mean, if you want to see someone who has a high regard for the text of the scripture, behold John Milton, right? Uh, Mm. But again, you know, like we were talking about earlier, because he imagines the creeds and the traditions of the church as usurpers of the scripture's authority rather than subjects of the royal scriptures, to bend a metaphor horribly, uh, you know, I think that, you know, observing him as he makes those mistakes can be wonderfully instructive. Now, that's just the mistakes, of course. You know, like I said uh, in this little book, Milton's focus on the story of Jesus as a dramatic story, uh, as one in which he is in a contest with Satan for the soul of Israel and therefore for the soul of all of the nations you know, is one that is wonderful literarily, I think. Uh, You know, I mean, there's a reason that, you know, I've written a master's thesis chapter and a dissertation chapter on it because I think that it's wonderfully interesting stuff. Likewise, 
uh, even though Dante's comedy uh, is by and large a, a long series of conversations between Dante and Virgil and then Dante and Beatrice uh, and eventually eventually Dante and Bonaventure. Uh, you know, I mean, what you've got there is the soul of the platonic dialogue, you know, the arrival at the truth by means of refuting erroneous points uh, added to the great drama of the Christian story. So, I mean, I would say that they are great teachers of the church, even if their pronouncements are not the measures by which we determine whether something is right Christian teaching or not. Gotcha. And to that list, we can add um, something like the Great Divorce as well, I'm sure, for, for uh, oh, Protestants. Oh, sure. Certainly, certainly. Now, I, I do want to talk a little bit about literary criticism, though, Michael, because that, you know— why don't you go ahead and read the question, Michael? I feel bad taking your questions away from me. Well, now that you have uh, now that you've informed our listeners that I read them, I'm going to read it in the most flat <laughs> way possible. As an Americanist, I found your more general general pronouncements uh, to be more interesting than your readings of Lanyard and Milton, which has nothing to do with the quality of your uh, readings and everything to do with my level of knowledge. Uh, so let's talk about that final <laughs> chapter. Uh, what is the intersection between literary criticism and theology? And what does your project have to say to those of us who dare to try to combine them? Well, that, that chapter really began with what I call the riddle of Stanley Fish. Uh, and, you know, Stanley Fish, you know, always positions himself as a riddle so i think it would please him uh you <laughs> know that, in an enigma? indeed uh, covered in special so, sauce I mean, what what you've got in my mind is sort of two sides of stan fish that i was wrestling with back in 2004 one side of stan fish is the stanley fish who comments on milton who writes books like surprised by sin how milton works uh, these are books that crawl inside the mind of the 17th century Protestant uh, that really write better theology than a lot of Christian writers write. Mm. Uh, and it's because he is living with Milton, he's thinking with Milton, he is basically you know, trying to crawl inside of Milton's mind and see reality through the eyes of a radical Protestant. On the other hand, you've got the Stan Fish of professional correctness of his recent New York Times columns uh, of The Trouble with Principle, uh, which basically says that what we call literary criticism uh, is a self-contained activity. Uh, it should not presume to speak to his main focus as political reality. Uh, but, you know, it seems like you could extend that to the worshiping lives of 21st century believers and that separation is something that in 2004 and i'd say still in 2011 i can't live comfortably with uh it seems like those two worlds are speaking to each other whether you want them to or not hmm. and so in that last chapter i mean when i was reading it uh in preparation for this show and of course i hadn't looked at it since about April when I turned the manuscript to Lambert Academic Publishing, uh, I realized that, I mean, this was far beyond my grasp back in 2004, and I'm not that much more adequate to it now, but to give you some idea of this sort of recursive motion that I'm trying to trace, what you got is a definite distinction between the practices of literary criticism and academic theology 
and homiletic theology, for lack of a better word, the theology that is practiced by believers in the context of the church. And yet, what I think of as a reification of that distinction into a neater and nicer seal than should be there. So in other words, literary critics proceed to talk in educated tones about the Christology of Milton and the feminist poetics of Christ of Lanier, uh, as if saying those things about Christ have no bearing on their relationship to the Baptist church three blocks down the street from their university. And, you know, that was the difficulty that I was trying to name back then. Uh, And, you know, as, as I wrapped it up, I kept, you know, looking, trying to find something between the last paragraph of my thesis and the bibliography to see if I had actually tried to resolve it. And as it turned out, I didn't. Uh, I would love so to I, see you write a book-length work just on that subject. Well, and the crazy thing is, I one of the books that I read this summer that hopefully we'll be doing a podcast episode on in the fall uh, is George Marsden's book, The uh, the Outrageous Idea of Christian Scholarship. Mm-hmm. And what blows my mind is I just now read that book for the first time, but I had to have been, back in 2004, in conversation with somebody who had read that book because I was coming up with his questions left and right in that chapter on literary criticism. Oh, uh, no, I'm you know, excited I'm, to read that book. Yeah, I mean, that 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 reified division between the academic world and the world of faith is exactly what troubles him in that book. Uh, and, you know, like I said, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that I was magically channeling George Marsden. I'm sure that at some point I had had a conversation with someone who had recently read it and that informed my chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, those are the sorts of things that, you know, interested me about that. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of rambling at this point, almost filibustering. I mean, Michael, what, what about that chapter? I mean, would you want to respond to? I'm just wondering if it can work outside of a new historical, uh, his, historicism, uh, context. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah, but because thanks. because a, a, a oh, yeah. lot of the arguments you were making to me, and I'm I'm not at all putting you down, seem uh-huh. like uh, new historicism applied to theological fiction, for a better for lack of a better word. Right, right, and I do use the word fiction, so I mean that's a valid use of it. Yeah, I mean, I and just to give our listeners, I mean, a little glimpse of what new historicism is. It's a school of literary criticism, really got big in the late '80s, early '90s. Um, as far as I know, I mean, still a large factor in Renaissance studies. Are you, mm-hmm. you would you would consider yourself a new historicist, wouldn't you, Nathan? Uh, Probably not. You avoid labels. <laughs> with, with severe qualifications. I think that the new historicist school teaches us to keep a mirror alongside our books. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that we can see ourselves doing criticism even as we see that which we're criticizing. Yeah. I think that is the main thing that new historicism does well. Now, I think that, unfortunately, the mirror that a lot of new historicists use, and this is why I tend to cross my fingers when I say that I'm a new historicist, uh, is a mirror that is manufactured by the Michel Foucault Mirror Company, uh, (laughs) and therefore, which can only see this sort of Nietzschean eternal recurrence. Right. Within, not only within the intellectual world, but basically within any human community. In other words, mm-hmm. 
there is no justice, there is no goodness, there is no mercy, there is no love. Power, there power, is power, power, power. <laughs> yes, yes, power, 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 all the way down, yeah. I'm married uh, to a new historicist, by the way. <laughs> what now? I'm married to a new historicist, by the way. <laughs> oh, I know, I know, and, I, and, I, and I'm sure Victoria is going to comment on the blog and let me know how I've gotten this terribly wrong. Uh, but, and that's all right, because I... You know, well, you got it I, wrong I, on purpose so that you could show that you were better than her and, and should have more authority <laughs> than her, I believe. Well, and I mean, I'll, I'll go ahead and make a confession right now, Michael. I, I am always most nervous when I talk about Renaissance literature uh, because I'm supposed to be a specialist in it. <laughs> <laughs> but, <Yeah. laughs> but I always know in the back of the uh, in the back of my mind, I'm incapable of being a specialist. So I know that I'm almost always getting most things wrong when I talk about the Renaissance. Yeah. You know, the only difference is, you know, when I talk about, you know, classical Greek literature, I'm also getting everything wrong, but people can give me, uh, you know, a little bit of slack because it's not my specialty. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't know anyone whose specialty it is. Well, that's, that's also true. That helps. Um, but at any rate, Michael, I mean, you know, the, like I said, I mean, I think that that kernel of new historicism is what I want to grab onto and mm-hmm. make part of my own critical approach. What I'm very, very suspicious of, and what I've gotten more suspicious of over the seven years since I wrote this thesis, uh, is that Foucauldian, Nietzschean, everything is power and nothing is any more than power sort of approach. And part of what my dissertation is trying to do, Michael, is to take some of the problems that are central to Christian ethics, the problems of sin, the problems of total depravity, those sorts of problems, and to demonstrate that the Renaissance texts themselves actually give us resources beyond what that Nietzschean, Foucauldian, new historicist model would give us. So therefore, Spencer and Shakespeare and Milton actually have more to offer us than what the new historicist tradition is willing to receive. So you're starting from a new historicist framework and ending up as almost like a traditional humanist. Yeah, I mean, that's fair enough to say, and I mean, I'm very influenced in that respect, uh, not necessarily by literary critics, but by academic theologians like John Milbank, uh, who calls himself a theological historicist, uh, by David Bentley Hart, who's very much interested in multiplicity and what he calls the parataxis of God's beauty. Uh, and I mean, I think those sorts of things, because they point beyond the horizons of new historicism, can actually help new historicism to be better than what it imagines itself capable of being. Mm-hmm. Well, provided a different mirror to look into while you're reading. Right. Sure, sure. Yeah, sort of a, a book of James looking into the mirror, not a... Right, uh, right. Not a Mark Twain's allegory of reading mirror. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say the the mirror, a lot of those new humanists, uh, or new humanists, new uh, historicists look into, they can't stop looking at <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and and I would say, Michael, I mean, I, I get the joke, first of all. Don't, don't put me in the bin of people who don't get jokes, please. You I can do your joke. next podcast with Philip Pullman. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that they ought to keep looking into that mirror, but I think it ought to be James's mirror, like David was saying. Right. No, I I agree. It's it's good to remind yourself frequently that you're doing, uh, that a human being is doing criticism. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I do think um, there were there were some points where you made some useful connections by pointing out the the investedness of feminist critics and Marxist critics 
Right, right. And and incidentally, that's also a point that Marsden makes over and over, that the Academy is perfectly ha- perfectly willing to welcome in Marxists who say, you know, the Academy is part of my project, feminists who say the Academy is part of my project. He says that, you know, a Christian ethical approach to literary criticism or histor- historiography or whatever is the same kind of criticism going on. I'm sorry, David. I cut you off. Keep rolling. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, 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 th- I think, I think those are those are helpful, helpful comparisons to, to, to be to to kind of show that no, there there is, um, there there are already people who are doing things like that with, with the imprimatur of the academy. So what's different about a Christian criticism, so to speak? Right. 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 Except that it's an unfashionable lens through which to view literature. Right. Yes, and then and then we've changed the rules of play. Because now we're talking about why don't you like this fashion? <laughs> right. And you know, part of my project is to I mean, do that little act of deconstruction, you know, that binary between faith and scholarship really deconstructs when you look at it carefully enough. And I realized I just went to Derrida again. <laughs> I you like you went to, to Derrida to support that. Christian criticism, too. Imagine that. I did. Somebody's head just exploded. <laughs> well, uh, that's it for today. I think I don't know if we're out of time, but we're out of things to talk about anyway. I'm sure we will continue where we left off when we win, if whenever we do uh, George Marsden's uh, book or the podcast on George Marsden's book. In the meantime, you can get in touch with us at uh, the Christian humanist at gmail.com and our web address is www.christianhumanist.org. Uh, we'll be back sometime in August with our fifth season. I guess we're calling it fifth semester. We've been doing this, not including our two summer half seasons. Uh, Nathan, do you have any idea what we're coming back with? Yeah, we're going to come back with a reintroduction to the Christian Humanist podcast. We seem and to do I'll that every fall, don't we? It. We do. Well, well, I'm I, th- I think it's appropriate to do. Reboot. That's the that's the fashionable term these days. <laughs> yes. Will this be a gritty reboot? <laughs> Three times as much profanity. Yes. And I'm going to start talking like this. Also, I'll be naked the whole time. Oh, God. <laughs> Uh, all right well thank you for listening we hope you will you will uh, c- come back and, and listen again for our uh, for our fifth season of the fall in the meantime this is michael farmer for uh nathan gilmore and david grubb saying let your sins be strong but let your faith be stronger